Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 65 of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Uh, 65 big episodes, and uh, hopefully many more to come. Uh, my name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me, as always, are my colleagues Julie Bartuka hey. and Ken Best. How you doing? We're coming to you from the three corners of Connecticut <laughs> because we are working remotely uh, in this time of pandemic, but the show must go on. That's the great maxim of our business. Of our business. Show. We're big sh- we're yeah. big showbiz types. <laughs> we are big showbiz types. And what a show we have for you this week. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to learn a lot. But let's talk about some things that have been happening at UConn. What's, what's been going on, everybody? There's been a ton of really cool science stories. Kim Krieger has been just banging them out. Um, one of the ones that I found really interesting that posted yesterday was Dr. Imatola over in UConn Health. He's a multiple scler- sclerosis specialist. He led some research on, it's called stem cell tourism. So you may have heard people who have some kind of neurological disease and go to Mexico or um, I think they do Russia sometimes and maybe China because the health uh, regulations are a little more lax. And they do these experimental stem cell treatments and they say, you know, we're going to cure you. And they inject you with some kind of stem cell uh, concoction. And apparently this is very dangerous. And they found that uh, of the doctors they surveyed, I think nearly a quarter of them had patients who were injured or even killed by uh, these kind of treatments. So very dangerous. Make sure you know what you're getting into um, if you decide to pursue that kind of experimental treatment. And... You can read more about that at UConn today. Yeah, and uh, this week on Monday, we had a little press conference, a little socially distanced news conference on campus to announce a $10 million USDA grant. A researcher at UConn is, is getting that to develop new ways to produce chickens in a more sustainable and healthy way, hmm. both for the chickens and for the environment. The business of the university continues despite the pandemic. And on a bit of a lighter side, the current edition of Yukon Magazine is out, and you may recall our uh, interview with Mike Chase. I think it was last year, last summer maybe once. Our alum from the law school who writes the Crime a Day blog and column, and he's got a, he had a book out, and he, he did something special for the magazine where he talks about some of the Connecticut laws that can get you into trouble, or used to in, in some cases, such as uh, noodles have to be under 0.27 inches to keep the feds away. <laughs> they sort of let ramen slide because it's a college thing for students, but you, you, you can still have ramen noodles. On the other hand, you cannot write a term paper for someone else. That's against the law. You can get six months As in jail. As it for should that. be. Cheaters. Statute of limitations is a year. Cheaters. A year. So you got some time on that. And then up until 1976... You could not have dancing or music on Sunday evening. Hmm. That's changed, fortunately. Puritans. There's lots of events on Saturday, Sunday, rather. Yeah, that was a really um, fun article. He's a very funny guy. All kinds of things you can't do, but you know what? That uh, the term paper thing, that's, that's a good segue to Tom's History Corner that we'll eventually get no. to. Before we do that, before we get to Tom's History Corner, we've got a story from Julie. Yes. So kind of continuing with our pandemic and people stepping up with uh, using their their powers for good, as they say. So schools obviously have been really hard hit by the pandemic. They had the sudden switch to distance learning in March. 
And now there's the whole debate on whether it's safe to send students and teachers back. And like many of the people we've talked to during these times, Associate Professor of Literacy Education, Rachel Gabriel, quickly looked at her own expertise to see how she could help in this area. Professor Gabriel is the director of NEAG's Reading and Language Arts Center, which um, had already established this group of alums and current students throughout the state known as the Language and Literacy Fellows. So when this all started happening, she tapped into that group to get some ideas for how to help reading teachers across the state and even the country. During this time, she ended up starting a podcast, a free book distribution program at a few schools here in Connecticut, and an open online course that's modeled after the university's groundbreaking COVID-19 course that was like taken by the most people ever. So she's going to have this course um, about literacy. So we talked about all of these things. What, what is the Reading and Language Arts Center? It's been around since the late 1950s, and it's had lots of different kind of roles and iterations over the years, depending on the needs of the university and the state. But right now, it's a research center, among many others at the university. And we have a new-ish program, about a year old, called the Language and Literacy Fellows, where we've brought back alumni and distinguished practitioners to be fellows of the center to inform the work that we're doing in an advisory capacity, but also to extend the work we're doing. So guest lectures and courses, presentations for current students, connecting us to classrooms for research, collaborating on the research. To be a fellow, you have to either teach for the university or publish in the field research conducted or elaborated at UConn. So these are all practicing teachers and coaches and stuff that have published or conducted their own research or done presentations or taught, kind of doing the work of professors, but from their position. And we're creating a community of them as our research practice research hub. So obviously educators are among the most impacted and disrupted by the pandemic with a sudden shift to remote learning. And you tapped into this literacy fellows group to see what you and the Reading and Language Arts Center could do to help educators. So what were some of the things that came out of that? It started out, you know, I asked immediately and got back, thanks for asking, but we have no idea. (laughs) But I kept asking. And so at first, connection was a really big theme. We were new to isolation and people wanted to feel connected to each other. And so I started a podcast and interviewed some people that are fellows and then also people that they wanted to hear from. So got some experts to come on. And then when I was talking with people on the podcast or reading through comments about the episodes, folks kept coming back to two issues. One was the need, especially for little kids to have more physical books at home, because you know how little kids will read through a book and want to read it again and again and again, and then it's memorized. So it's not like new reading material. Mm -hmm. And yes, there are devices and yes, e-learning and yes, yes, yes. But also there's something really satisfying and 24 seven accessible, which devices aren't necessarily, and we don't want them to be necessarily always um, looking at a screen. So we started brainstorming about ways to connect kids with books and found some partners and found some funding and delivered about a thousand books to a couple of different schools. And we are doing it sort of as a pilot research project to try to understand good strategies for book distribution. So we tried a different strategy with each school and each grade band to try to understand how that would work. Um, Summer reading we know is super important and distance learning reading is sort of a version of summer reading. It's like this out of school leisure time. Students have to choose and want to do it. Mm. So making sure they have books that they can and want to read is like super important. 
So we're just experimenting with that as a research center and also as a group that is connected with schools and serving communities and kind of living out the land grant mission, informing schools about the need to do this and making sure that we have really good advice and evidence for how. Everybody knows summer reading is important, but the strategies for doing it vary pretty widely. And so we wanted to get some precision on what would be good. What have you covered on the podcast that you've done? What kinds of uh, people have you talked to and what, what issues have been discussed? The first couple of things were in response to specific questions that the fellows brought up and kind of voted on for which were the most pressing. And one of them was about assessment, like how to ethically and fairly test kids online, which assessments to use and how to organize them, stuff like that. And then also just what are different states and districts and organizations doing because it looks really different across settings partly like what tools are out there but also partly like how do you wrap your brain around what you're trying to do so we just talked to different people about how they're making it work and what's working for them there's a lot on social media about like how difficult it is and then there's a lot of like random tips and tricks and it's really hard to sort through so we had sort of the long form version of that like the the conversation around what people are doing and why they decided to do it and whether, how and whether they know what's working. And then we started talking to different folks, parent coordinators, about how to engage parents and families from a distance and what that looks like. And school leaders and district leaders to get some insight into how decisions are being made and why and all that during this time. And in doing so, started to come back around this kind of theme that we always talk about teaching as the learning profession, but teachers were all on this enormous growth curve to figure out how to conceptualize teaching across a distance. And there's been a lot made about what people had to learn about technology, like the logistics of it, but that's really the easy part. The harder, <laughs> the harder part is like conceptually, what are we doing as educators? How do we know it's working? How do we give and get feedback on the um, teaching learning interactions? And most of what we were seeing in the media and people were commenting on on the podcast is kind of scary and negative. Like there is big learning loss. Kids are not getting anything from this time. It's a gap or an interruption or a you insert the negative word. And I don't want to minimize the challenge that is this time and the reality of gaps and interruptions. That is totally true. But it started to seem like we were getting to the same place we are at the achievement gap, which is falling into a habit of gap gazing instead of understanding and changing. There are some folks that, as language and literacy fellows, I think do amazing work, nobody better, super innovative, super cool, super connected. And I thought we need to connect these people with each other and we need to connect a wider audience with them. So when I saw that the university had the free online COVID course, that it offered. I uh, got that email and <laughs> I emailed the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning immediately and said, how can I do something like this? And they said that it's pretty simple. If you build it, people might come. And so mm -hmm. we built a course with modules that are focused on like teaching right now, teaching during this time, socially and culturally, and then also just logistically. And thinking about the fall of 2020 being the weirdest fall on record for educators and the need to feel like you are prepared and inspired instead of just plain anxious, which a lot of us are, and that's very real and not going to change. But with that, <laughs> also some inspiration and some excitement around possibilities we thought would be fun. So yeah, so I'm super proud of what, what people came up with for the course. I'm really excited for folks to get into it. 
So it's called Literacy, Learning, Engagement, and Inclusivity in Uncertain Times, right? Yeah. Uh, so I liked how on the website, it actually talks about kind of all of the things that are going on right now. It says on the website, teaching literacy in the context of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the blurring of assumed boundaries between school, home, individual, and collective. So how does all that impact teaching, reading, and literacy, and just teaching in general. I think it's become clear to more people that it isn't just about like the skills. You have to make sure in terms of like kids wanting to learn and having the mental and emotional and physical logistical resources to learn. So you can put a, a videotape of you teaching a skill up on the internet, but if kids can't access it, or if they can, but don't want to, if they can and want to, but don't have the background knowledge, it's becoming clearer and clearer how individuals interact with the instruction we provide them. And that people really need to understand the experience kids are having in a moment in order to teach them. And so we tend to think of reading as something that you can call it like little r reading, like literally just recognizing words on a page or big r reading, like being able to interpret um, and find meaning in the world around you. And those things are connected, but I think it's even clearer how very connected they are. And kids are also showing us other versions of literacies that they have that we didn't necessarily ask for or reward or look for in schools, but they are able to communicate in social media in increasingly layered, complex, and sophisticated ways and to interpret the stories that they see around them, whether they're out doing protests or whether they're just watching this happen on various sources of media. And so we've had to contend with understanding that kids can and want to and should do a lot more than what we maybe were asking them to do during reading class or during English class, but also that in order to make their literacies more powerful, more conventional, more understood, and able to be flexible and to reach wider audiences, we still need to really teach reading in English really well. And in order to do that, we have to think more about motivation and engagement and the cultural context kids find themselves in. And so what we've tried to do in the course is have as many different perspectives on reading and literacy as possible. There's, there's 10 modules, but it's 15 different presenters. And these folks have pretty different backgrounds in terms of why they care about literacy and what they know about literacy. And you can tell from each module, they're set up a little bit differently. I was interested in allowing them to vary. And you really can see kind of the thought processes and the ways of presenting like between the modules are really different. They really are the creation of the presenter. And so we have people that are really focused on early beginning literacy and kind of walking you step by step through how do we do letters and sounds and how do we read words and how do we know how kids are doing with that. And we also have folks that are doing much more a deep dive into anti-racism pedagogies, like how do you design instruction so that it surfaces racial issues and how do you design instruction so that it is inclusive and, and doesn't inadvertently, like how do you see for yourself so you don't do it by mistake, how you privilege or disprivilege or you uh, support or over support or <laughs> under support the kids that are around you. So there's stuff where educators will be able to look at themselves and try and figure out like where they are with a lot of these issues and what that has to do with the work of, you know, planning and teaching and assessing. Uh, and then also looking at their materials, the curriculum they use and the texts that they use and ways to think about that. And all the way down to the very beginning skill levels. So we've got 
you know, how do you help your kindergartner at home, all the way to how do you engage adolescent readers that struggle with reading, and also how do you engage adolescent readers who are not struggling at all and are really deeply engaged in literacies outside of school, and how do you make those connections? I'm always interested in how people became what they are. So how did you get to be a literacy expert and educator, and what led you to this? My my mom was a, a reading specialist for most of my life, and so she told me that I could be anything I wanted to be, but please don't go into education. It was sort of the typical she wanted better, and also she sort of saw across her career how what was a really independent, autonomous, creative, intellectual pursuit was becoming less and less, all of those things. And so, of course, that's what I did. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I worked at a camp called Camp Ramapo um, when I was in college. It was for kids with developmental disabilities and also what were then called kind of emotional behavioral disabilities and sort of a funny combination, but a, a one that really worked. And I decided that I just wanted to work with children. I loved doing it. I wanted to be with them all the time. And in my naiveness, naivete, the quickest way to do that was to become a teacher Because if I tried to become a clinical psychologist, I knew it would be many years before I could work with students, work with children without being somebody's assistant's assistant's assistant. And so I was a Teach for America Corps member in Washington, D.C. for a couple of years. I stayed in my school beyond their two-year commitment. And when I was teaching, I was teaching middle school English and I had lots of kids that struggled with reading. And that by the measures we were using, I want to be careful to say that, like they had lots and lots of literacy power and prowess. But by the measures that we were using, many of them were four or more years behind in reading. And so I obviously became super interested in how to do reading support and remediation and development and all of that, and was really surprised and unsettled by how little people seemed to know about it around me. And so I reached out, I took lots of graduate courses in it, I went to conferences, I read books, and at a certain point I said, I don't want to do as, as kids are asking me questions instead of answering them immediately, I got kind of stuck in my head all the time about like, why do you have that question? Why is this, why is this even a thing? And I realized that if I wasn't totally present for them, I needed to go find my own answers. And I always thought I'd come back, which is a typical story. <laughs> Teachers leave the classroom to get PhDs and think they're coming back. I didn't. Also a typical story. Um, but yeah, I had all these questions about reading and how it worked and why it sometimes didn't and all that. And I just, it was to the point of distraction. So I turned the books that I thought helped me the most as an educator. I flipped them over to see who wrote them. I emailed those people and said, do you take doc students? One of them said yes. And the rest is basically history. The free online course called Literacy, Learning, Engagement, and Inclusivity in Uncertain Times is open to all. It's uh, geared at K-12 through teachers, but anybody can take it, and it's going to be available at least into the middle of September. Participants can choose to do all or some of the course, which includes 10 modules and three panel discussions focused on teaching literacy in the context of the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the blurring of assumed boundaries between school and home, individual and collective, according to the website. You can visit reading.education.ucon.edu to register. Our, our faculty uh, monitors everything that's going on and tries to be of assistance mm-hmm. to the teachers in, throughout the state because many of them did attend the university, uh, and even those that did not find us a very good resource. Yeah, it's all about sharing that knowledge, and Rachel was really fun. We had a really great time talking, and we could have probably talked forever, but had to, had to cut that off, keep it short for the podcast.
That's right. That's the important thing. That's what we do here. <laughs> so we've got a, we've got a special edition of Tom's History Corner because it involves UConn, but it also involves the University of Bridgeport. Ken, I, I have nothing to do with this. As far no, as I but know. you like we always talk about our fond UConn memories, and you're left out. Now you have a stake in the story. It involves well, the be- University of Bridgeport and crime. Ah. <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, that's not uh, something they want to hear about. I can tell you. <laughs> the spring of 1965, a UConn student named Norman Pfeffer, who was a 23-year-old sixth-semester student in the what was at then called the School of Business Administration, was arrested along with Joel Brown, a 22-year-old graduate of the University of Bridgeport. They were arrested on three counts of breaking and entering with criminal intent and one count of extortion. Hmm. What happened, according to There were no Yukon police at the time. It was Yukon security uh, and state police. But what happened to Yukon security and state police and also officials at Bridgeport is that Pfeffer and Brown were were running essentially uh, a a scam where they would break into the administration building at the University of Bridgeport and alter grades on student records. And then they would extort money from the students who had paid them to alter the, the grades and threatened to reveal that their grades had been altered unless they got essentially hush money. Why didn't um, they just charge more to begin with? <laughs> well, you know what? It's you know what it is. It's entrepreneurship. Yeah. They were you know just, uh, student entrepreneurs. Um, the story says that fingerprints taken from the filing cabinet led them to Brown, which makes me think they already had his fingerprints on file for some reason. <laughs> but I'm guessing, I'm guessing this, uh, some of the students they were extorting money from uh, complained because uh, they were quoted in the police article saying. They bugged us for money on threat of revealing to school authorities that our marks had been changed. Um, so uh, at, when the story, this was in the Daily Campus uh, in March of 1965, when the story was written, there had not yet been a, a, a disposition of the case. So I don't know if they were found guilty. I couldn't find any, any more information on it. Um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, UConn officials said no action had been taken yet on the case, which I imagine they meant they still had to go through the disciplinary process to to expel uh, Norman Pfeffer. Or maybe they didn't. Maybe he was a completely innocent victim. Of, uh, of someone else's sinister imaginations. but uh, <laughs> Wow. I would say that while we encourage student entrepreneurship uh, at UConn, this is not a good example. Not at all, no. Of student entrepreneurship. And, um, you know, nowadays it's much harder to change grades. You can't just break into a building and, you know, erase a, a D on a <laughs> And what did they, like, did they just keep everybody's grades all in the same place? I, I just... Yeah. Back, well, in the, back, back in those days, uh, there were computers but gigantic computers in the basement of uh, as i recall marina dining hall was where you had to registrate do the registrar's operation and so you had to stand in line to do your registration i think all the grades went through there as well and so it was quite a big deal i mean it was probably a paper list of of the grades rather than an electronic Mm -hmm. list because we didn't have as many computers available back then i would point out i was not there yet (laughs) so you were you were saying you were not you were not involved in this operation well i was saying i wasn't at the university (laughs) (laughs) oh there's still a possibility (laughs) it's a a non-denial denial no no no. (laughs) um but yeah that's uh you know what? And I bet that's what, what got them uh, caught is not so much the, the breaking and entering and change of the grades. It was them getting greedy. Well, obviously, like I said, yeah. just up your prices to begin with, and then you avoid the yeah. extortion co- uh, charge. Wow. Norman Pfeffer. That's another great name. I'm writing that one down. 
Yeah. It makes me it makes me glad that I, I I almost chose my University of Bridgeport shirt to wear. Today. Oh my goodness! No, but new, instead, you're wearing, wearing a New, new Jersey, Jersey shirt. shirt. Just a nondescript right. general support of the state of New Jersey, <laughs> where I am from. <laughs> I like New Jersey. Don't hate on. Well, New that's Jersey. Tom's history corner for this week. We've learned a lot about crime, and we've learned a lot about. We why didn't you learn not... a lot. We only learned we... the beginning of the story. <laughs> well, we learned about the crime. <laughs> I, you know, I, I want to know about the consequences. You're probably going to have to go to the uh, archival files in the. Uh, uh, Let's take a field trip to, to Bridgeport Library in Bridgeport. Yeah. To, uh, to to find out uh, if there was anything in the the old Bridgeport Post Telegram. There you go. Which in those days it was a morning edition, and the the, the Telegram was in the morning, and the Post was in the afternoon, and then the Sunday Post was on Sunday. They had three papers coming out of the same building. Um, this is like the uh, the first half of an episode of Law and Order. Like yeah, it's just the we crime need the part. beginning. I mean, we need the end. My mom was in Bridgeport at that time, but she was only three years old, so she was not involved. So she was also not involved <laughs> no. in this. Uh... <laughs> Hi, mom. Although no, no, no one would suspect. No, she could have been secretly. Yeah, no, my mom was a goody two shoes. She wouldn't have been involved in that. <laughs> um. If you uh, if you enjoyed this episode, or you didn't enjoy this episode, if you're an enraged Norman Pfeffer and want to clear your name, <laughs> uh, feel free to tweet at us uh, at UConn Podcast. Uh, you can also find um, at Main underscore Old. That's our our uh, Twitter account where we post the old pictures and things uh, from UConn days gone by. We uh, posted um, a picture of uh, Bud Jilson, mm-hmm. who we talked about in our last episode. So you can go and judge for yourself uh, how attractive Bud not. Jilson is, hot or not. <laughs> And you can find me at TJ Breen on Twitter. Julie, is there anything you'd like to plug? No, I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. Yukon um, Health Journal is still at healthjournal.yukon.edu. Ken, how about you? Well, as usual, Saturdays from 3 to 6 at 91.7 WHUS in stores. Yukon Sound Alternative, streaming online at whus.org. And, of course, on Fridays at 11 o'clock in the morning, you can uh, listen to uh, historic episodes now of the Yukon 360 podcast that Julie, Tom, and I selected, especially for your listening pleasure, this summer. And we're almost at the end of the summer because we are in August now, so we have to start thinking about the fall. Yeah, the the next episode you hear from us, uh, students will be back on campus. So uh, Wild. Things are, thing, uh, it is wild. Things are happening really quickly. We will not be, but they will. <laughs> That's right. We will not be on campus. Um, <laughs> All right, well, thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, let's meet back here in two weeks.